In these verses, we are reminded that Christianity is rooted and grounded in human history. The Christian faith has taken place in real time, in space. Uh, it, it did not begin in the, the mind of a philosopher who was sitting in an ivory tower or in a think tank removed from life. Instead, Christianity was lived out on this earth over many centuries and over many generations. The Bible records the account of real people who have had one real problem, sin, and stand in need of one great historic Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus came to this real world. He was born of a real mother named Mary. He was born into a real nation, Israel. We can find it on the map. At a real time, approximately 6 or 5 B.C., he lived a real life. He performed real miracles. He died a real death. He was raised in a real resurrection from a real grave. He was seen by a real crowd of 500 he ascended back to heaven to a real throne in real heaven. Jesus now offers real salvation to real people like you and me that we might be delivered from a real hell. So in this genealogy, there are five designations that we need to see about the Lord Jesus Christ that, that really rise like towering mountain peaks from the terrain of these verses. And as I've already pointed out to you, that Jesus is the son of Joseph, verse 23. He's the son of David, verse 31. He is the son of Abraham, verse 34. He's the son of Adam, verse 38, and the son of God, verse 38. That is what you and I need to take from this genealogy. It's really all about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's really not about the other 75 names per se. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus Christ. And in fact, what this genealogy is telling us is that all of human history is moving forward to find its crescendo in the Lord Jesus Christ that the entire Old Testament has one basic message. He's coming. He's on the way. The four Gospels tell us Jesus is here. The book of Acts preaches Jesus. The epistles explain Jesus. And the book of Revelations tell, tell Revelation, singular, not Revelations, as the country preacher says. Revelation tells us he's coming again. So, this genealogy that we're looking at here is like one big finger pointing to verse 23 that Jesus is coming and He has come and that all of the lines of human history intersect in this one person and it, it, no one else could have been the Messiah. No one else could have been the Savior. He had to fulfill this lineage. And this lineage becomes absolute positive proof that Christ and no one else is the Savior of sinners. So, let, let's walk through this, and I want you to see these five distinctives about the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first is in verse 23. Number one, Jesus is the son of Joseph. And we're going to spend a little bit more time with this verse than with the other verses. Verse 23 begins, when he, Jesus, began his ministry. That's referring to his public ministry. We saw that last time in verses 21 and 22, immediately preceding, in the baptism of Jesus in the River Jordan. That was the inauguration of his public ministry. At that moment, Jesus stepped out of the shadows of obscurity of all those years he had lived in private in Nazareth. And now is the moment for him to begin his public ministry. It will last slightly more than three years, and it will 
it will conclude at Calvary with him dying upon the cross. So, when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age. As you know, Luke was a very accurate uh, historian. In fact, it has amazed uh, ancient historians and archaeologists how precise Luke has been with the details uh, historically and chronologically in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And already to this point, we have seen uh, the birth of Christ. We, we have seen that on when he was eight days old, he was circumcised, and on the 40th day, he was presented for purification in the temple, and that when he was 12 years old, he was in the temple about his father's business. And then we saw in, at, in chapter 2, verse 30, uh, 52, that he just kept growing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And now, in verse 23 of this chapter, he's 30 years old. So, there is this timeline that Luke has laid out for us of these early years of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's very significant that he would say about 30 years of age. He was probably a couple years slightly over 30 years of age. The time here is 29 AD. He was born in either 6 or 5 BC. And there's something very significant about 30 years of age because in the Old Testament we learn that that was the age when most would step into leadership and into ministry. And that is when a prophet, a priest, or a king often assumed that responsibility. And for example, uh, in Numbers 4, verse 3, we read that when a son of Levi would enter his priestly service in the tabernacle, he would begin to be a priest at age 30. He's, he's grown up now. He, he, he's a man. He's an adult. He is ready to assume the responsibility. And in Genesis 41, 46, we read, Now Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh made him co-ruler uh, ruler over all of Egypt. He's at an age now to assume the weight of responsibility. And in 2 Samuel 5, verse 4, we read, David was 30 years old when he became king. He, he's ready now to preside over the affairs of the nation. And in Zechariah 1, verse 1, we read, now it came about in the 30th year, Ezekiel says, I saw visions of God. And so, Jesus now is 30 years of age, about 30 years of age, and He now has matured. He's gone through the maturing process, just like everyone in this room had to, had to, to grow up from being an infant to being a, a child to being a teenager to being a young man or woman till finally reaching adulthood. And that is exactly where we find Jesus now. He is ready to assume His public ministry. But what I want you to see are the next um, four words. In verse 23, when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age. Now, watch this. Being as was supposed, the son of Joseph. Supposed. The word supposed means considered to be, thought to be. Uh, the word is used 15 times in the New Testament, and in almost all of those uses, it has a negative connotation, meaning someone has mistakenly assumed. Joseph, uh, Jesus was supposed to be the son of Joseph. And which is it? Well, the answer is yes. And no, um, Jesus was the legal son of Joseph, 
but he was not the biological son of Joseph. In a Jewish court of law, Jesus is considered to be the son of Joseph. But in the courts of heaven, he's considered to be the son of God. So what this strongly affirms is the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. That's the very subtle illusion, yet affirmation, that Luke is making as he is recording this genealogy. Let me read it again. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being as was supposed. That means that the general populace of the people assumed he was the son of Joseph, but in reality, he was the son of God. Uh, Mary was his biological mother, but she was impregnated not by Joseph, but by the Holy Spirit. Earlier in Luke 1.35, the angel Gabriel said to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And it's a beautiful, discreet way to describe this, almost like a cloud passing over a parcel of of land. So the Holy Spirit hovered over Mary, and then the angel said, for that reason, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. Not the Son of Joseph, the Son of God. Yet legally, he is the son of Joseph. How strange is the virgin birth. Jesus was the earthly son of a heavenly father, and he was the heavenly son of an earthly mother. When Jesus was born, he was as old as his father and older than his mother. That that is why Luke uses this word supposed to distinguish the technicality here of including Joseph in the genealogy when Joseph is not the biological father. Technically, Jesus was not the son of Joseph in that Joseph was not his biological father. Joseph is included because he is Jesus's legal father on a human level. And of course, all of this had been prophesied some 700 years before the coming of Christ by the prince of prophets, by Isaiah. And in Isaiah 7, verse 14, God has said, the Lord himself will give you a sign. This sign will distinguish that this child is the son of God. This sign will distinguish that this is the one whom I have sent into this world. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Now, here's what the sign is. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. (laughs) A virgin will be with child? How does that happen? It happens by a supernatural miracle performed by God in the womb of Mary as eternal deity will be joined to sinless humanity to make him in the womb in that moment the sinless son of God. And then this verse concludes in Isaiah 7 verse 14, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. (laughs) So, a virgin will be with child, and this child will be called God with us. God in human flesh. God in the womb of Mary in a body that has been prepared by God himself. It's the virgin birth. Now, what is the importance of the virgin birth? Why the virgin birth? 
Because Jesus had to be born sinless in order to live a sinless life and to die in the place of sinners upon the cross. Therefore, Jesus could not be sired by Joseph because the sin nature is passed down at the moment of conception. Otherwise, if if Joseph had been the biological father, Jesus would have inherited the sin nature of his earthly father. The only solution, the only solution to this dilemma is the virgin birth, and only the infinite genius of God could have designed the resolution of this dilemma in the virgin birth. None of us here today would have ever come up with this solution, the virgin birth. Mary had to be sired by the Holy Spirit in order for her to have a holy child, a holy offspring without a sin nature. Listen, the virgin birth is not incidental, it's fundamental. Jesus had to come as He did to be what He was to do what He did. Jesus had to be born of a virgin in order to be without a sin nature in order to live a sinless and perfect life under the law, in order to be a sinless substitute, in order to be a sin-bearing sacrifice upon the cross. All of the theology of the gospel in one way rests upon this cornerstone of the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you remove the virgin birth the entire life and ministry and death and resurrection of Christ comes tumbling down. This is why it is so important. And before we move on, I I do want to stress this. This little word, supposed, in verse 23, your translation may have it as, as was thought that this entire argument in, this, in the genealogy here, the virgin birth of Christ, rests upon this one word, supposed. And this underscores the inerrancy of the Bible, the flawless accuracy of the Bible, the infallibility of the Bible, that the Bible can be trusted, that the Bible nowhere contradicts itself that the whole of the Bible comes together to form one body of truth, one system of theology, and even just the addition of this one little word, supposed, establishes the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was only thought to be the father of Joseph, But not in reality, God, the Holy Spirit, was the one who sired Mary. So the first thing that Luke wants to draw our attention to is that Jesus is the son of Joseph. Second, Jesus is the son of David. If you would come to verse 31, to the end of verse 31 in this uh, lengthy genealogy, we see that this mountain peak, the importance of David, the son of David. This means that Jesus was born into the royal line of David. He was Israel's second king. Uh, Jesus was the rightful heir to the throne of David. Now, Luke, as he's recording this, is intentionally drawing our focus to David. And what should really capture our attention is that the other kings are not mentioned here other than two of them, as Zerubbabel is one of them. Not even Solomon is mentioned in this genealogy, and Solomon is mentioned in Matthew's genealogy. And so Luke just bypasses basically the other big names who sat on the throne of Israel and and makes a, a beeline here, and he wants us to see David as though we're looking through a keyhole. He, he wants us to see David with myoptic vision, with, with tunnel vision, if you will. David is the next mountain peak that we need to 
lock in on because it had been prophesied in the Old Testament that this coming king will come in the Davidic line. He, he, he couldn't come out of right field. He couldn't come from just anywhere. He, he has to be in this lineage or he is unqualified to assume the throne and reign at the right hand of God the Father. And so let me give you some Old Testament texts that will really help show that this has been, this has been building for centuries in 2 Samuel 7 and verse 12, God said to David, I, God, will raise up your descendant, David's descendant, after you, those who will follow you chronologically, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David did not sit on his throne forever. David had a relatively short time to rule as king over Israel. But God is saying, there is one who's coming after you, who will be a part of your extended family tree. And when he assumes your throne, he will never be impeached. He will never be put out of office. He, he will have a perpetual kingship, and he will reign forever and ever and ever. It's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ and his coming kingdom. This is affirmed later in Psalm 132, verse 11. The Lord has sworn to David. It's pointing back to what I just read you in 2 Samuel 7. The Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back. <laughs> Listen, God has sworn. God has placed his hand upon himself, for there is no higher name by which God can swear. And God has pledged an oath that one of David's descendants who will follow him will sit on David's throne and he will rule and he will reign forever and ever and ever, unlike all of the other kings who have presided over Israel. So let me read this verse again, Psalm 132, verse 11. The Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not take back. God will never take back this promise. Of the fruit of your body, referring to David's body, I will set upon your throne. That is a staggering promise that God has made. And he will not reign for a season. He will not reign for decades. He will not reign for a millennium. He will reign forever and ever and ever. Isaiah spoke of this. You remember Isaiah 9, verse 6, unto us a child shall be born, unto us a son shall be given. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Very next verse, verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. All of this has been laid in Old Testament Scripture, in 2 Samuel, in Psalms, in Isaiah. It's all pointing ahead to the coming of Christ. And so this prophecy finds its fulfillment in this one Jesus in this genealogy. And earlier in Luke 1, 32, as, as you will recall when we looked at this several months ago, in Luke 1, 32, the angel Gabriel said to Mary, now just tune your ear to hear this, this child that will come forth from your womb, Mary, he will be great. 
and will be called the Son of the Most High. Your son will be the Son of God, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he, this son who is coming from you, Mary, he will reign over the house of Jacob, referring to Israel, forever, and his kingdom will have no end. No wonder David's in this genealogy. <laughs> David is, is one of the footsteps that lead through the history of the Old Testament that will find its consummation in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, therefore, Jesus is not some self-appointed Messiah. He's not a self-deceived individual with a Messiah complex. He, he is the only person in human history who can meet the credentials of this genealogy. It is Jesus and no one else who will be the Savior of the world. C.S. Lewis, who was the great uh, Oxford English professor from several years ago, became a Christian. And as he thought through the, the gospel of Christ and the person of Christ, he concluded there are only three options. Either Jesus knew he was not God, yet claimed to be God, so he was a huckster, he was a con artist, that's option number one. Option number two is that he was a self-deceived madman, someone with a Napoleonic complex, someone who thought he was the Messiah, but he was mentally deranged. That's the second option. Or the third option, Lewis said, or is exactly who he claimed to be. God in human flesh. Either he is a deceiver, or he is deceived, or he is deity. There are no other options. And the weight of the, of the evidence is so overwhelming historically, prophetically, theologically, that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. He fits, David fits right here in this bloodline that will flow until it comes to Christ. The third thing that I want you to see is in verse 34, that Jesus is the son of Abraham. I'm just cherry picking the high points here for us because I, I don't want us to get lost in the weeds with, some, with the second-tier names. And Jesus is the son of Abraham. It says in the middle of verse 34, the son of Abraham. Now, Abraham was the father of the nation of Israel. And it was to Abraham that God issued the Abrahamic covenant and made the promise of a great future. It was promised in the Abrahamic covenant that there would be a greater son of Abraham, just like there would be a greater son of David. There would be a greater son of Abraham who would be the savior of sinners and his salvation would reach around the world. In Genesis 17, verse 7, God is the speaker and God speaks to Abraham and God said, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you through the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. It's an extraordinary promise that God made to Abraham because he was 99 years of age. He was past the capacity to be able to produce a child. His wife, Sarah, I think was 90, and she was past the age of being able to to, to bear a child, and yet with this promise, again, God would perform a supernatural miracle in the womb of 
of, of Sarah, that there would be not just a child born to you, Isaac, but that there would be untold numbers that would be a part of the kingdom of God around the world that will come from your loins. But there's more. In Galatians 3, verse 16, after God has opened up the lens in Genesis 17, Paul now narrows the lens to one individual. You know, you can imagine who this individual is. In Galatians 3, verse 16, Paul writes, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, plural, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, Christ. There would come from the loins and the lineage of Abraham in future centuries, there would be one in this, in this line, and it will run through David, there will be one who will be a seed, singular. And this seed will be so potent and so powerful that out of this one seed, when planted in the ground there will come forth a bumper harvest of souls that will enter the kingdom of God. From this one seed planted, the seed is Christ. There will come forests and forests of souls that will be born again into the kingdom of God. This is a staggering promise that is, that is being made by God to to Abraham. <clears throat> and so that is why we see his name in verse 34 that Jesus is the son of Abraham. Jesus is the seed from whom all redeemed sinners will find their salvation. But I want you to come now to verse 38. And I want you to see fourth <clears throat> that Jesus is the son of Adam. Jesus is the son of Adam. So we read third name in verse 38, the son of Adam. Now, this is very important because Jesus is compared to Adam. And Jesus is called the second Adam. There's a first Adam, this Adam, and then there's the son of Adam, who will be the second Adam. Now, why this comparison between the two? Because Adam stood as the representative of his race. His race was the whole human race. He was the federal head. And whatever he did would affect everyone whom he is representing, either positively or negatively. It's just like a football game. If one man jumps off sides, the whole team is penalized. But if one man makes a touchdown, the whole team scores. And so Adam is acting as the federal representative of the whole human race, that whatever Adam does... Hey, thank you, Kent. I appreciate that. Give me just one moment here. <clears throat> I don't know what happened to me. Y'all care for any? Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> when Adam sinned, his sin was charged to your account. And you became a sinner more than 6,000 years ago. And his sin nature has been passed down 
from generation to generation to generation through the Father, and you inherited his sin nature. His bent to sin, his inclination to sin, his propensity to sin, such that at the moment of conception, you were already a sinner, and you already had a sin nature, and you came out of your mother's womb, the psalmist says, speaking lies, all because of what Adam did. Now, in Romans in Romans 5 and verse 14, it says that Adam is a type of him who was to come. He was a picture of Christ who would be likened to a second Adam. And so Jesus was the representative of, <clears throat> of his people, the elect of God. Those who have been chosen by the Father before time began and given to the Son, Jesus now represents the elect. And Jesus, by his sinless life and substitutionary death, Jesus, what he does is now charged to your account. And what he has done is far better and far more than what Adam did to you. In other words, you gain more in Christ than you lost in Adam. Jesus is the son of Adam in that he is the second Adam. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. For as in Adam, all die. So also in Christ, all will be made alive. Everyone in this room is in one of two men. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. That's just the theological truth of the matter. You were born in Adam... That's why you have to be born again to be in Christ. If you're still in Adam, you're under condemnation. If you are in Christ, you are in salvation. In 1 Corinthians 15, he goes on to say in verse 45, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving soul spirit. So here Paul defines the first Adam and the last Adam. And then in verse 47, the first man is from the earth, earthly. The second man is from heaven. So all this is to say, for Jesus to be the son of Adam indicates he is the second Adam and that he has come to reverse the curse that was brought on by Adam. Romans 5, verse 15. For by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Verse 16. The judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation, but the free gift arose from much or from many transgressions resulting in justification. So Adam is included here because Jesus is the son of Adam. He is the second Adam. He is the last Adam, and he has acted on your behalf, and he has brought so much good to your life. Because of his obedience, you have been justified and sanctified, and one day you'll be glorified. And so, Christ, Christ is from the foundation of the world, the one who has been appointed to be the Savior of sinners. Now, there's one more designation that we need to see, and it's at the end of verse 38. 
And it is that Jesus is the Son of God. What an amazing way for this genealogy to really conclude, yet it's, it's beginning. This now traces the family tree of Jesus even further back than Adam. It goes back to before Adam. It goes back to eternity past. And the eternal generation of Christ as the Son of God without beginning. So it says, it concludes, the Son of God. That's who Jesus is from all eternity past, before Adam was even created. Jesus was already the Son of God. He was always in existence. He was always co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father. He is eternally the Son of God. And this is placed here because in verse 22, in the baptism, God the Father says, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This now ties in with the end of this genealogy to show us that Jesus is God in human flesh, that he is the second person of the Trinity, that he is the Son of God. And John 1, verses 1 through 3 is the text that we need to hear right now, which says, in the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, In the beginning, the Word was already in existence, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So there's a distinction, two persons, one is God, the other is the Word, but then he says, but the Word was God. There are two persons who are God, one God, three persons. It's the doctrine of the Trinity. Verse 2, he, the Word, was in the beginning with God, meaning In the beginning of everything, the Word was already in existence with God. Verse 3, all things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. You see, Jesus is the uncreated creator of everything. There's never been a time when Jesus came into existence. There's never been a time when Jesus was created. This says everything has been created by him. Therefore, he is uncreated. Otherwise, he would have to have created himself, which is nonsense. Out of nothing, nothing comes. It's a very fundamental principle. And so Jesus is the eternal son of God. And that is stamped at the end of this genealogy. He is like no other man. Adam was just a man. Abraham was just a man. David was just a man. But Jesus was not just a man. Jesus was a man, as much of a man as you are a person, but he was also God. The God-man. Truly God, truly man, fully God, fully man, perfectly God, perfectly man, joined together in one being, the God-man. I want to end, I just want to give you a few cross-references here on the deity of Christ that just makes it so clear. In Colossians 2, verse 9, in Him, in Christ, All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Did you hear that? Not some deity, the fullness of deity. Titus 2, verse 13, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Who is Jesus? God and Savior. Romans 9, verse 5, Christ according to the flesh, who is overall God-blessed, forever. Who is Jesus? He's God. And then John 20, verse 28, Thomas in the upper room, 
when he saw Jesus, he said, my Lord and my God. And Thomas was not corrected because Thomas said it correctly. And then finally, 2 Peter 1, verse 1, we read, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? He is our God and Savior. So this genealogy that Luke has laid out for us is of extreme importance. Normally, a genealogy would be at the beginning, like in Matthew's gospel. And interestingly, it's placed here at the end of the third chapter. And it is placed here because of what the Father just said in verse 22. You are my beloved son. And so now the genealogy is placed exactly after that glorious statement by the Father to document the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ and to document the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of these generations had been building and building and building toward this time when one would come who would be the Messiah who would be the Son of God and the Son of Man. Well, this has been a look at his physical genealogy, and not a one of us find ourselves in this physical genealogy. But there's another genealogy of which you need to be a part, and it is his spiritual genealogy, his spiritual lineage that when you believe in Jesus Christ, you become a son of God, a daughter of God, and you enter into the family of God. And it is we enter into a kingdom that shall endure forever, and there will be no end to his kingdom. So I need to ask you this question as we come to conclusion, are you in the spiritual lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you been born again? Have you been converted? Have you come to the place where you put your entire trust in Jesus Christ to save you? Have you turned away from this world and turned away from a life of sin? Have you turned to Christ? Have you embraced Christ as Lord and Savior? If you have never done that, you must do so, and you must do so now while you have opportunity. So I call you to believe in Jesus Christ. No one else can make this decision for you. This alone rests in your hands for you to make this decision. Of course, God must help you to make this decision, but it is your responsibility and it is your accountability to God to believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. And so if you have come to the realization that you've never believed in Christ, then the Lord has you here today for a purpose, and it is to hear this message. Strange as it may sound on the genealogy of Christ, nevertheless, you got the big picture, that Jesus is everything, that He is the only one who could be the Savior of sinners. You know that you've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and there is only one who fulfills this genealogy to sit upon the throne of David to rule and reign over a kingdom that will never end, to be the seed from which every true believer will blossom and grow and bear fruit. And so I call you today to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Until you do, you're in the first Adam. But if you would commit your life to Christ, you will be in the second Adam. You will be in Christ. And all that He did in His life and death will be credited to your life and become your life. And so I would urge you to do so today, this moment, while you have opportunity to believe upon Christ. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this genealogy, which in many ways is complicated, is perplexing, and yet We get the big picture, do we not? Father, you have laid out for us 
down through the centuries, this path that would lead to Christ, unmistakably lead to Christ. It could not have led to anyone else. And so thank you for the intentionality and the purposefulness with which you have overseen human history and have brought Christ into the world at just the right time from just the right mother and just the right legal father. This is all your sovereignty on display, and we stand amazed. So bless each and every person here today. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand for the closing benediction? It's from the book of Revelation. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I want to thank you so much for joining me on this episode of From the Pulpit. If this was edifying to your Christian walk or if perhaps you have committed your life to Jesus Christ for the very first time, please leave a review wherever you listen to this. If you want to connect with me on social media, I can be found at Dr. Stephen J. Lawson or at One Passion Ministries. If you want to join me live as I travel and preach, my speaking schedule can be found at onepassion.org. Well, thank you for joining us for this episode of From the Pulpit. May the Lord greatly bless your walk with Him. Thank you for joining us.